We have been studying uh, Isaiah, and Isaiah is known as one of the major prophets of the Bible. Uh, that has nothing to do with whether Isaiah is a prophet more important than others. We call him a major prophet because his book, the book that bears his name, is the longest of the prophetic books of the Bible. So we've been studying this prophetic literature, reading and con contemplating the words of the prophet. And I think we need to remember at this point and remind ourselves what a prophet is and what his job is as a prophet. When you talk to many people today, uh, people tend to think that a prophet's job is to predict the future. Now, to be sure, uh, biblical prophets like Isaiah do certainly speak about the future. But when they do, it is always in service of another end. Uh, for prophets like Isaiah, they speak about the future, and the future matters because it serves the main objective of his prophetic ministry, which is revealing God's character. That's the main function and the job of a biblical prophet, to reveal God's character. And we see that in full display in this passage. And Isaiah reveals to us that the redeeming God is holy. The redeeming God is holy. Now remember, all the way back in chapter 6, remember Isaiah's dramatic encounter with God. In chapter 6, we read that in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, you might remember that Uzziah was one of the better kings of Judah. He started out as a devoted young man. He followed the Lord with all his heart. He was humble. And in turn, the Lord blessed him, and he prospered. He became successful and powerful. But when the Lord blessed him, and he became successful and powerful, Uzziah became arrogant. He became proud. So he became so arrogant to the point where he trespassed into the temple in order to offer sacrifice to the Lord, which was only the job and the ministry of the purified priest. And the concerned priest tried to stop him. But Uzziah at this point had become so arrogant. You know, when people become really arrogant, you can't talk to them anymore. They don't listen. And that's what happened to Uzziah. He got angry when the priest tried to stop him from committing this blasphemy. And then the Lord struck him with leprosy. And so this king, who had a great beginning, he started out as a godly, devoted king. He died a leper, an unclean outcast. That is to say, when we read in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, the air is thick with the sense of God's holiness. You just cannot escape that from the reality that 
that sinners cannot stand before God. And so Isaiah well understood his own doom when in the year that the king Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne and he heard the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah instantly knew that he was done. And he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So that's how Isaiah starts. And indeed, throughout the book of Isaiah, God's holiness is the constant theme in the book. And so throughout Isaiah, God judges sin. God judges the sin of Israel. He judges the sin of Judah. He judges the sin of the whole world. He judges the sins of kings. He judges the sins of priests. He judges the sins of regular folks. And so as you read Isaiah, you cannot get away from the realization that God's holiness cannot allow the triumph of sin over righteousness, nor can he allow sinners to flout his law and mock his glory. And it comes through so clearly throughout the book of Isaiah. God is holy, and we are in trouble. But at the same time, as the prophet Isaiah reveals God's character of holiness, he also reveals to us God's character of mercy. And so, in, back in chapter 6, Isaiah feared the judgment that he knew he richly deserved. But already in chapter 6, as Isaiah pronounces woe upon himself, God pronounces and declares mercy. And so in that chapter 6, we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with, thong, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Holiness and mercy. But for a long time, we do not understand how God can be both holy and merciful. How can God spare sinners when His holiness demands that He must judge sinners? And as we make our way through the book of Isaiah, that answer gradually comes into focus in the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. He will bring both God's holiness and mercy to their fullest extent. And as we make our way through the book of Isaiah, we begin to see that the Lord through his servant, through his faithful servant, he will establish and exercise his holiness without compromise. 
And through his servant, he will be merciful to the uttermost. Holiness and mercy. And so in this passage, that Lord now speaks in view of what the servant will do. And that is why verse 14 begins out by saying, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He is the Lord who redeems. He is merciful. But at the same time, He is the Holy One of Israel. And He is that to His people, both merciful and redeeming, holy because of the servant of the Lord. And the rest of this chapter is really an unfolding of what that servant will do. And that brings us to the second point this morning, is that there is a greater salvation to come. A greater salvation to come. And so the Lord, who is the Redeemer and the Holy One, speaks. He says, For your sake I sent to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. Now this will become more uh, explicit and clearer in the later chapters. But what Isaiah is referring to, what the Lord is referring to is this. The Babylonians defeated Israel, and the Babylonians took the people of Israel and Judah as captives. But now Cyrus of Persia, God will send Cyrus of Persia to defeat Babylon, and the exiles will return to Judah. That's what the Lord is referring to here, for your sake, to a people who have been devastated, people who have been taken as captives. For your sake, I send to Babylon, I send Cyrus to bring them all down as fugitives. But can you imagine how far-fetched this promise must have sounded to them? You almost can't blame them, could you? Have, after having suffered this great tragedy, this upheaval of your nation and of your life, to hear the Lord say, I will bring you back, I think part of them surely must have said, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it with my eyes. And that is why, that is why God reminds them who he is. Verse 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Now, of course, he is talking about the Exodus when God brought his people from bondage and freed them from bondage in Egypt. And when he led his people, he did the unthinkable. He parted the sea before his people so that his people crossed over on dry land. And when Egypt pursued behind them with their horses and chariots, God brought the water back over them so that they all drowned. And the Lord is saying, don't you realize who I am? 
I am the God who parted the sea for you. I am the God who drowned Egypt for you. Do you really think that I cannot bring you back from Babylon? That's what the Lord is saying to them. Because you see, God is able. And He is more than able because He is about to do something even greater than what He did at the time of Exodus. So verse 18, He says, the Lord says to His people, remember not the former things. The former things here and in the passages before refer to the Exodus. So the Lord is saying, remember not the Exodus, nor Consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. And what he is saying is this, is this. As great as my power was at the time of Exodus, never mind that. I'm going to show you something even more powerful. As amazing as my work was when I brought you out of Egypt, forget all about it. Because you are about to see something even more wonderful, even more powerful, because there is a greater salvation to come, a salvation that is more glorious even than the Exodus. And God does not mean the return of the exiles from Babylon. What does he mean then? What is that greater work of salvation that is even more wonderful, even more powerful than freeing of God's people from Egypt? That greater work of salvation is God will have mercy on sinners. That's the greater salvation. And so notice how in verse 21, God calls them the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And you realize, don't you, that Israel fell far short of that purpose. God created them for his glory, but Israel did not give glory to God. God created Israel and, in, in fact, all of mankind that they might give God praise. But Israel and all of mankind utterly failed to do that. And so God points out their failings in verse 22. In verse 21, he says, You are the people whom I formed for myself that you might declare my praise. Then in verse 22, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. God created man to worship him. That is, because that is the purpose for which we exist, we are not truly and fully human until we bring our God our glad worship. Because the reason we exist is to worship God. Until and unless we do worship God with gladness in our heart, we fail to be fully human. 
You know, that's the polar opposite of the message that we hear in this world, isn't it? The world is telling us that in order for you to thrive as a human being, you have to do what makes you happy. Throw away all constraints. Every, every, every traditions, every uh, faith, every obligation, just be true to yourself, the world says. That's the only way you can thrive as a human being. But the Lord says, no, I have created for you. I have created you from my glory. You exist to praise me. And until and unless we are that, the worshipers of God, we are not fully and truly human. We do not thrive as human beings. And that's what Israel did not do. God formed Israel for his praise, but they did not call upon him. Uh, They considered worship of God as a chore, as a burden. It's not that they did not go through the motions of worshiping God, but they considered it a, a dreadful obligation. And the Lord says, you have now brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honor me with your sacrifices. Once again, it's not that they didn't go through the motions, but that they brought the gifts to God. They worshiped God, but without love in their heart and without gladness. It was a dreadful obligation for them. Now, I want you to understand this. It's not the amount of the gifts that we bring to God that matters. It's the love with which we bring the gifts that matter. You remember, don't you, how Jesus, once he saw a rich man putting in large sums of money into the temple, and then he saw a poor widow putting in almost a worthless small copper coin. And Jesus praised her offering. It's not, it's not the amount. It's not how much, but it's the love with which we worship and we bring our gifts that matter to God. And it is when we bring our gifts, not with reluctance, it's when we worship God, not feeling it as a dreadful obligation, but when we worship and we bring our gifts with gladness in our heart, with willingness, with love, that is what makes God's heart glad. And that's exactly where Israel failed. And that is also our bondage. We do not love the one that we were created to love. And with every love, we misdirect. With every gift, we withhold from God. Our guilt grows, increases. But then... So in verse 21, the Lord says, I created you for my praise. Verse 22 says, but you did not. You have failed. You did not worship me. But then here comes the amazing news. Verse 25. 
despite all of that, there is mercy. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And you see, loved ones, that is the greater salvation than the Exodus. The people that came out of Egypt, they needed constant cleansing. Now, when we have our Bible reading plans, and Genesis is easy. First half of Exodus is easy, too. And then you get to the second half of Exodus and, and the next three books. It just see, sounds and feels so irrelevant, doesn't it? The, the endless descriptions of offerings, the sacrifices. But you need to realize the point of that is that when God brought people out of Egypt, they lived in a constant awareness of their defiling sins, and they needed to constantly offer sacrifices and offerings in order to have a moment of peace with God. Because whatever sacrifice they could bring to God wasn't enough to fully and completely cleanse their conscience and give them peace with God. So when God brought them out of Egypt in that exodus, the people that he led out of bondage lived in fear before the holy God. But God is doing something new. He says, I, I am he who blouts out your transgressions for my own sake. You see, the people that came out of Egypt, they lived with a constant alienation from God, so much so that not even a great king like Uzziah could stand before God when God saw his sins. But no more. God will blot out every transgression. He will not remember our sins, and we will not be afraid to draw near God. That is the greater work of salvation that is to come through the servant of the Lord. And that brings us to the third and the last point. Such a great salvation can only be a gift. Look at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Why does he forgive? The reason God forgives is entirely in himself. It has nothing to do with what we have done to deserve that forgiveness. But the Lord says here, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Why does he forgive? It has nothing to do with you. And it has nothing to do with what I have done, what I have done to deserve it. It has everything to do with his character, his mercy. And so in verse 26, he says, put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. And what the Lord is saying is this. If you think I've forgotten some good things that you have done, if you think I've overlooked something, remind me. Put me in remembrance. Show me where I am wrong and prove my judgment about you wrong. Remind me the good things that you have done. 
but who can answer this challenge? The Lord says, your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me, against me. You see, Israel singles all the way to the beginning, to the, to the source, the foundation of their nation, to Jacob. Or if you want to go back further to Abraham. Or if you want to go all the way back to Adam. They all sinned. And all their mediators, all the people who are tasked with declaring God's word, they all sinned. And so God says, did I forget some good things that you have done? Remind me. Show me. Prove me wrong. But of course, they could not answer the challenge, nor can we. Not one of us can prove God wrong. And so God forgives, not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that we can show him, but God forgives because his servant answered his holiness to the fullest extent. And of course, the servant of the Lord is Jesus. It is Jesus who bore our sins, and it is he, Jesus, who bore God's wrath. And Jesus did it as man and for man in order to answer for the sins of mankind. And so in the servant of the Lord Jesus, God's justice is fully expressed and satisfied without compromise. And in the servant of the Lord Jesus, God is merciful to us to the uttermost. And so this is the answer. In Jesus Christ, God's holiness and mercy are not Foes. They are not set in contrast, but in Jesus Christ, God's holiness and his mercy blossom together. And what that means is, is that God's mercy and holiness should never be set at odds. It means the mercy that God gives us is a holy mercy. You see, you cannot, we cannot continue to turn our back on the reason why we were created. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Do you see that just a, a faithful summary of what this passage is saying? God created you for His praise, for His glory. And he has given you his mercy. He has forgiven all your sins. But that is a holy mercy. It is not the mercy that tells us now you can go live as you wish. But it is the mercy that cleanses us that we may begin to live for God's glory. And because we cannot continue to turn our back on the reason why God created us. He created us for his praise. He created us to bring him our glad worship and gifts. And that's what God's mercy calls us to do. And just as God's holiness is infinite, his mercy is also infinite in Jesus Christ. 
Isn't it a wonder, isn't it a mystery that our hearts are still divided? Isn't it just amazing that even now when we worship God, it's not always so full of love for God? But even so, He has blotted out our transgressions and He remembers our sins no more. And so, loved ones, let me say this to you. Let the sins that God has erased from His memory no longer weigh you down. Instead, begin each day with a glad worship. You see, when God sees you, He does not see a promise breaker, and He does not see a habitual liar. He could only see you as a promise breaker and a liar only if He has not blotted out every transgression, only if He is still keeping a record of your sins against them. But what he says here is true. He has blotted out all your transgressions. He remembers not one sin anymore. And so when he looks at you, he does not see a promise breaker. He does not see a liar. Instead, he sees a beloved child He sees only the blood that Jesus has shed. And God is satisfied with Jesus' blood. And he is satisfied with you. That is the mercy. Endless, infinite, so full of grace. So who are you? What are you? Are you the people that God has created for his praise and for his glory? You can begin to be that today, right at this moment, by saying and by believing that he, God, remembers your sins no more. Every transgression, every record of your sin against him, gone, blotted out. And when God looks at you, he sees the blood of Christ, and he is satisfied. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are holy and you are merciful. And we do pray that we would grow to enjoy all that you are to us. And may we be men and women, boys and girls, who take great uh, delight in living for your praise and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.